Father, thank you. You're a God who communicates with us. So who wants to reveal yourself to us? Who's longing for us to fall deeply in love with you? Would you help us to see you more clearly this morning? And to walk out of here to reflect that goodness. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Question for you. What makes you angry? I mean, think about it. What makes you just really, really angry? Is it, is it when that person cuts you off on the road? Or, or is it when your boss asks you to stay overtime? Or, or is it when your neighbor doesn't mow his lawn? Are these the types of things that make you really angry? Or some of the things that I heard in first service when we talked about this is, you know, hurtful words can make you really angry. Or somebody that drives really erratically on the road. Or somebody said in first service, politics, it makes me angry. What is it that makes you angry? How about a child being kidnapped? Does that make you angry? How about an innocent person, a bystander, getting shot? How about somebody being thrown into prison who didn't commit a crime? And here's the question. Does, does Jesus ever reveal anger? Because he told the, the disciples that if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. Well, there's actually one particular time when the Bible tells us that Jesus got angry. Let's look at it together. It's in Mark chapter 3. If you have your Bible, we're going to be looking at this entire story in Mark chapter 3, or you can follow along on the screen. But here we find Jesus having just had an encounter with the Pharisees regarding the Sabbath. They've been accusing his disciples of mistreating the Sabbath by harvesting grain on the Sabbath. And he says, you know, you wouldn't have condemned the guiltless if you remembered what the Bible says, it says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Uh, I'm not a God who's just wanting you to appease me by, to, to stop my wrath by your sacrifices to me. I'm wanting mercy. And then we get another story that, that unpacks that in all of its beauty in the life of Jesus. Verse 1 says, and he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. Now today, if you had a withered hand, you'd probably get a disability check. Or you'd find a career that wouldn't require you to use that hand. Matthew's Gospel tells us that it was his right hand. But he lives in Galilee, and in Galilee, they were tradesmen. And think about trying to fish with a withered hand. Matt, do you think that's doable? (laughs) Think about trying to, to farm with a withered hand. Think about trying to be a carpenter with a withered hand. Think about trying to work with your hand or your one hand and having a withered hand. And this wasn't just damaging for you, but this was for your family. They would, they would be in danger of, of not having enough food to eat because you couldn't grow the food. They would likely be suffering because of your withered hands. Jesus walks into church and somebody is hurting. And friend, if you're hurting this morning, I want to tell you that that's what church is about. It's about helping people that are hurting. At least that's what Jesus revealed that church is about. It's not just about understanding things and doing the right thing, except for as we realize that doing the right thing is to help those who are hurting. 
So he entered the synagogue and he finds this man. He has a withered hand. And verse 2 says, so they watched him closely. This is the, those Pharisees who are constantly hounding his steps, trying to see what he's up to. Whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. They're hoping that they're going to see Jesus do this. They, they know how Jesus behaves around sick people. He always heals them. When people are in need, Jesus always helps them. So they've got a pretty good idea that they're going to be able to accuse Jesus. This is a setup. Will Jesus be able to resist healing this man? Verse 3, and he said to them, man who had the withered hand, step forward. Jesus calls him up front and center to make a, a spectacle of this whole thing. And verse 4 continues. Wow, that went a long ways all at once, didn't it? I don't know how that happened. Here we are. All right. Then he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? Now, notice what Jesus is, is asking them. You know, Jesus has the capacity to, to simply say a word or to lay his hand on this man who has a withered hand. And instantly, his life problems will be changed. His life will be transformed. His family will have enough food to eat. Things will be better for him. And if Jesus does not act, what is going to happen to that man? He'll go on in his misery. He'll go on and his family might uh, suffer from hunger. Is it lawful to do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they kept silent. Matthew chapter 12 records the same story. In verse 11, it says, Jesus adds something more to it. He said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? He's looking at them. They're, they're there in silence. They're there hoping to accuse him for healing this man. And he says, Look, guys, if you had one of your sheep that you value so much, one of your own possessions that's for your livelihood so that you can have its wool, so you can... You can Use it for your sacrifices. If it fell in a pit, wouldn't you lay hold of it and pull it out? Then verse 12 continues, Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. You see, God reveals, Jesus reveals that it is lawful to do certain things on the Sabbath, and that is to do good, to make a difference in people's life. Jesus didn't negate the Sabbath. He didn't get rid of the Sabbath. Instead, he filled it full of the beautiful meaning that God is about mercy and not sacrifice. Verse 4 ends by saying, but they kept silent in Mark chapter 3. But they kept silent. And Jesus? How does Jesus feel about their silence? Well, here we get to our key word for today. And when he had looked around at them with anger... Jesus is angry because they keep silent. Notice, they didn't even say something that was bad. But they're holding back from encouraging Jesus. Here they are, the religious leaders. If they said something, in an instant, Jesus would have healed them. If they said, okay, yeah, Jesus, go ahead and heal him. And it would have made everything go well in the synagogue that day. Or they have the option to say, no, you can't heal on the Sabbath. But they choose the safe road, they think. They're not going to say anything. They don't want to ruffle feathers and they, they want to accuse him. So they're just going to keep silent. And silence makes Jesus upset when somebody's hurting. 
So Revelation chapter 14, verse 9, we've been looking at the third angel's message, and we've spent a lot of time on it. And I'll be honest, this message to me in the past hasn't had a lot of meaning, but the more that I look at it, the more I'm realizing there is so much here. And I've been dreading getting to the verse that we're on. We've been looking at uh, verse 9. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark in his forehead or on his hand. Verse 10 then goes on to say, He himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. I like to skip that verse. How about you? That's a verse that I'm kind of like, I don't know why that's in my Bible. Should it really be there? I, maybe, maybe John just, I don't know. But should I really focus on it? But the more that I've been studying this, the more that I realize that this is a revelation of God's love that, that I think we need to take a little bit of time to unpack. And here's the key thing. Here's the key and crucial thing to understand. As we look at the things that make us angry, that's different from the experience of God. God wants us to recognize that he has emotion, that he is affected by what goes on on this planet. But he also says something interesting in James chapter 1. It says, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear and slow to speak and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. A key distinction for us to understand, when we talk about the wrath of God, we're not talking about that angry person in your life who's hurt you. We're not talking about that kind of anger that somebody displays on the road. We're not talking about the anger that you see in politics over meaningless things. What we're talking about is an infinitely good God displaying his love in all of its attributes. So let's go back to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3 and verse 5 says this, And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved at the hardness of their hearts. Notice, when he has anger and he's looking around at them, angry that they're not saying anything, there's another emotion that's coming along with that. He's also what? Grieved. You know, in my family, when something happens to the family that, that we feel like we've been mistreated, there's a different reaction for Leah and me. For me, I get angry and I want to fix it or I want to, and I don't think my anger usually accomplishes the righteousness of God. But for Leah, it's more likely that she's going to be crying. <laughs> it's going to sadden her. And I admire that about Leah. She has a soft heart and I want that. I want a heart that's grieved, even in the midst of anger. You see, Jesus is is filled with anger, with wrath. It's the exact same word that's used in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6. And it's the only time, or Revelation chapter 14 and verse 10, and it's the only time it's used to describe Jesus. And the only time it's used to describe Jesus is he's angry because people aren't getting it. They aren't getting what it's all about. And in the midst of that, it describes and unpacks what that anger looks like. He is grieved by the hardness of their hearts. Okay, so I need you all to do something. How many of you have elbows this morning? Right? I need you to grab the skin on the end of your elbow. Okay? And I need you to just pinch it as hard as you possibly can. 
right? How many of you can hurt yourself by pinching your elbow as hard, the, the skin of your elbow as hard as you can? Anybody hurting right now? No? Nobody's hurting? You're not feeling anything? Okay, Steve pointed this out in, in first service. Now pinch the back of your hand. Can you, can you hurt yourself there? That, that hurts a little bit more, huh? Maybe not as much, maybe not that much, but you see, when a heart becomes hard, it no longer can feel. And that, to God, is the thing that brings his wrath. It's a recognition that there's no longer any hope here. There's no longer an opportunity to help these people participate in my love. They have so hardened themselves. They've so closed themselves off. They're so callous. They're rejecting me over and over again. And as they finally have totally hardened their hearts, he's angry and he's grieved. In other places in the Bible, Hosea, he says, how could I give you up? How can I give you up? I just don't know what to do because you continue on in this path. He's grieved by the hardness of their hearts. And what is his reaction to that? Notice what happens uh, continuing on. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And his hand was restored as whole as the other. Now as he does this, what is he displaying here? Is, he, is this a wrath? Is this an anger that you typically picture people do when they're angry? They go around healing people? Making people's lives better? Is that what anger motivates you to do a lot of times? When you're angry at that person on the road, do you bless them? Do you pray for them? Do you just chase after them in love? (laughs) When Jesus is angry, he's healing a person's hand. (laughs) He's making the world better. He's impacting people's lives. That's what the wrath of God looks like. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Notice what Romans 2.4 says. And Romans, we'll look at this a little bit more, unpacks this picture of what uh, the wrath of God is all about. But we're only going to look at two verses today. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering? God is so incredibly good to you. And, And do you just despise that totally? Forget it, pass it by? Not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. You see, Jesus is still trying to bring them to repentance. He's trying to display his goodness by healing a withered hand. And he's hoping that it'll still bring repentance. But notice what verse 5 goes on to say. But that very goodness, in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart. Your your heart is calloused and it's unfeeling. It's not able to to feel what is going on in people's lives. And your impenitent heart being your, your heart that is not able to change, not able to go in a new direction. You are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. As we harden our hearts, we're treasuring up within ourselves this wrath that in and of itself produces destruction in our psyche, our soul. So, uh, it goes on to to describe how that takes place. Who will render to each one according to his deeds. The wrath of God looks like this. That each person reaps what they have sown. That each person experiences the full weight of the choices that they have made in their lives. That's why the goodness of God is designed to lead us out of that end. 
And we're going to talk a little bit more about how that goodness is unpacked in our lives next week. But let's go back to the story. Verse 6. How's the reaction of the Pharisees? How do they, what, what, what do they react to the healing by doing? Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. So apparently it's okay to, to, to plot with your enemies. They were enemies of the Herodians. To plot with your worst enemies how to kill uh, your new worst enemy on the Sabbath. But it's not okay to heal somebody on the Sabbath. You see how deranged religion can make us. Sadly, religion can be one of the, the, the worst or best places to hide from God. They had a set of beliefs that they thought were correct, and they were zealous about guarding those, and in the process, they were planning to kill the very one who'd given them the law of God. Desire of Ages, page 309, says it this way, a jealous regard for what is termed theological truth often accompanies a hatred of genuine truth as made manifest in life. Yeah, I, I know how it all works. I've got all the, the right set of beliefs. I can outline to you exactly what the Bible says is right or wrong. But if you live next to me, you'd be a miserable person. If you lived in my house, you wouldn't want to be around me. goes on to say, The darkest chapters of history are burdened with the record of crimes committed by bigoted religionists. The darkest parts of Christian, uh, not Christian history, of world history are the result of bigoted religionists. Sadly, it's the truth. And this is why many people are atheists. They're running from the wrong God, this God that is of a different character than the one that actually exists. Religion, false religion, is the most dangerous thing on the planet. Especially false Christianity, because it's mis representing the very uh, essence of who God is as our Savior. Then it goes on to say, the same danger still exists today. Men may profess faith in the truth, but if it does not make them sincere, kind, patient, forbearing, heavenly-minded, it is a curse to its possessors, and through their influence, it is a curse to the world. This is pretty crazy to think about. I mean, this is basically saying it would be better for you not to know the truth about, say, the seventh-day Sabbath than it would be for you to, pro- to, to profess that truth and to live a life that is unkind, that is hurtful to other people. Now, now just pause right here because all of us are unkind at points in our life. But this is talking about having a trajectory of our life that doesn't care about people, that is, is unwilling to, to let the Holy Spirit transform our hearts, that is not wanting to go in the direction of what his character is like. That is a curse to the world because it misrepresents who Jesus is. So the Pharisees, they go out as a result of Jesus displaying his anger, his anger by going over and I'm going to heal this guy And I know what it's going to do. He's grieved by their hardness of heart because he knows that they're going to walk out of there and they're going to seal their doom by wanting to put to to death the Messiah. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 15 concludes that story by saying this, But when Jesus knew it, 
When Jesus knew that the, the Pharisees had gone out seeking to destroy him, that they're plotting his destruction, what does Jesus do? He withdraws. He withdrew from there. And this is that picture that we saw in the video earlier. That was from the Bible Project, by the way. They have a lot of good videos that break down words and concepts from the Bible. Oftentimes, God's wrath is revealed by a withdrawal of his goodness from our lives, a withdrawal of his presence from our lives. There's both that concept and also just the full-on revelation of his righteous and loving character that is too much for a hard heart to take. Jesus withdrew and allowed them to go on in what they wanted to do. So we find in the Old Testament that this concept of God's anger, we're not just extrapolating something just because, okay, this is the only time that it said Jesus is angry. Is that really what makes Jesus the most angry? Because, I mean, sometimes we think it's, it's our, our little missteps in life or maybe the way that we feel like we have, have, have erred in, in various ways that don't really have to do with loving people around us. In fact, this past week I met with a guy who uh, felt like he'd made a really bad decision and it had uh, resulted in just some, some trauma for his own life and wound up in the hospital and some other things ended up happening. And he said, oh, I know God's really angry at me about that. It's like, really? It, w- it sounds like an accident to me. You think that that's the type of thing that just, you know, God's just waiting to condemn you because you made some foolish decisions in your life? I don't know. Exodus chapter 22, though, gives us this picture of what the prophets and are again and again emphasizing is what brings on the wrath of God. And it makes a whole lot of sense, especially if you're a parent. We'll get to that in a second. Exodus chapter 22, verse 22 says, You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. The widows who, who can't provide for themselves, who, who can't even own property. They have all of these uh, hindrances in the ancient Near East. Don't afflict them or that orphan child who can't take care of himself. Make sure that you're watching out for that orphan. Verse 23, if you afflict them in any way and they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry. That's beautiful, isn't it? He hears the cry of the oppressed. In fact, that's what happens when when Pharaoh is oppressing the Israelites. God comes and he says, I've heard the cry of the Israelites in their slavery. But notice what it goes on to say. And my wrath will become hot, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall be widows, and your children fatherless. That's pretty intense. And this is one of the most intense things in Exodus. In fact, this is the one time where you find that word wrath in the law of God, or at least that I I noticed in my studies here. And what is it specifically dealing with? It's dealing with how you treat the fatherless, how you treat the widow, How you love the people around you. These are the things that make God upset. Which makes a lot of sense. Have you ever had a a child mistreat its sibling? (laughs) You you know, you watch watch as as two children get into a fight and, and something happens. And does it make you angry that you see the violation of one child by another child? There's anger there. But you love them both still. But you don't want to see your child get hurt. And it's hard to see that. For us as human beings, when when we see some random person doing something that, that makes us angry, it's a whole lot easier to be angry at them with no love involved in that. 
But for the God of the universe, every one of you, every person on this planet, every creature is of infinite value to him. And so his anger is always an attribute of his love for all of creation. Zechariah depicts it again. Um, and this time, you'll notice how in Zechariah, it describes how this is, this is what all of the former prophets, being all the prophets that come before Zechariah. Now, Zechariah is in the end of the Old Testament. So if you want to understand what is the Old, Old Testament all about, here he gives us a summary. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, execute true justice. Meaning, get rid of the injustice around you. Execute true justice. Show mercy. Compassion. Show, show kindness to the people around you. Care. Have empathy, sympathy for what people are going for. Everyone to his brother. For every person that's around you. Because recognizing that we are all one human family. Verse 10 goes on to say, Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless. Again, back to what... Uh, Exodus told us that, that God's anger burns hot when those who are vulnerable are mistreated because he, he wants to step in to defend them. The alien, that being the, the sojourner, the foreigner, the one who doesn't look like you, who comes in among you, who, who does he really belong here? Do I really have to be kind to him too? Is he really a part of, of us or the poor? This is the list of people that, that God is especially passionate about defending and watching out for. Let none of you plan evil in his heart against his brother, okay? Against anybody in your life. And then it goes on to say this in verse 11. But they refused to heed. They shrugged their shoulders and stopped their ears so that they could not hear. <laughs> they, they saw these things going on. They saw that there was injustice. They saw that, that the poor were being mistreated, that the alien wasn't being given all of his rights, that, that things were happening in society that were unjust. And they plugged their ears, they shrugged their shoulders, and they went off to synagogue and said, let's celebrate the Sabbath. And they made sure that they paid tithe of their, their mint and their cumin, that they took every tenth leaf and they took it to the temple. <laughs> Meanwhile, they were neglecting mercy, justice, and the love of God. They shrugged their shoulders. That sounds, and stopped their ears. That sounds a little bit about like what made Jesus upset when he said, they kept silent and he looked around at them with anger. They shrugged with indifference at what's going on and the world around them. Could they really make a difference anyway? What did it matter? Verse 12, yes, they made their hearts like flint. Jesus said he was angry and grieved by the hardness of their hearts. What makes our hearts hard? It's when we neglect to uh, do justice, to love mercy. It's when we don't watch out for those who have less than we have, for those who are oppressed, for those who are weak and vulnerable in society around us. That is what again and again the prophets are so passionate about. I challenge you to look throughout the Bible and you'll find this coming up time and time again. And we have gotten so confused because we think it's just about our relationship with God. But our relationship with God means nothing if we don't love the people around us. John says exactly that. How could you say you love God if you don't love the people around you? Christianity is missing it. I don't know how to say it any clearer than that, but we have become a people who are represented as 
not caring about those who are in desperate need around us. And I don't know if it has to do with our politics. I don't know if it has to do with what we believe. But when it comes down to it, if we are missing this, we're missing everything. It's what it's all about. Refusing to hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by His Spirit through the former prophets. Every prophet that came before, Zacharias says, this is what it's about. Loving people, making a difference in their lives. Therefore, it happened that just as he proclaimed and they would not hear, so they called out, and I would not listen, says the Lord of hosts. You didn't listen to the cry of those who were oppressed. So I'm giving you over to what you want the world to look like, and I'm not answering your cry. I'm giving you what you seem to want to be the way that the world should work. You know, Jesus hears your every cry. And if you're hurting this morning, I want you to soak this in deeply. Psalm 38 verse 9 says, All my longings lie open before you. O Lord, my sighing is not hidden from you. (laughs) You Think about it going through a a day, you're having a hard time and you just sigh. It's not hidden from God. He cares even about that sigh. That difficult time that you're going through. They did a study about how our brains uh, interact with pain and suffering and things in our lives. I was reading about it. And in this study, they were shocking people. I, I don't know how many of you would probably sign up for this study, but apparently um, they wanted to find out how your brain reacts when you're shocked. <laughs> and so they first shocked people and they were putting sensors on their brains to figure out how their brain reacted. And then what they did is they had another person be shocked while the observer was watching and having their brain monitored. And they discovered that the same thing happened in the observer's brain when he's watching somebody get shocked as happens in his own brain when he's shocked. It's it's as if it's actually happening to you as you see it happen to somebody else. This is what we were designed for. A heart that feels, a heart that is not hardened, a heart that is soft, for the, all that's going on in the world around us. You know, my, my little girls, I want to have a heart like they have. Abby and, and Livy, when, when they see something this past week, now, that, that same guy that got, got hurt, he's, he's a Bible study uh, interest that we do every week. We do Bible studies. He got pretty uh, brutally uh, cut on his face, and, and he was bleeding, and his friend sent me a picture of it to let, him, let me know why he wasn't coming to Bible study. And I got the picture, and we're sitting at the dinner table. I was like, whoa, Leah, look at this. I'm still learning to be a dad. Because they're like, I want to see, I want to see what picture, what picture? <laughs> uh, what do I do now? I flipped it to the one where at least he had some bandages on, but he still looked pretty bloody. And I turned it, and they looked at it. They had this shocked look on their face. You see, in your brain, when you see somebody else hurting, you are designed to feel that as if it's happening to you. And, and pretty soon they're saying, no, no, no see boy, no see boy. And, and for the next day or two, literally they'd be asking me when they saw my phone, no see boy, no see boy. You know the beautiful thing? I said, well, you know what? We need to pray for, for him to feel better. And we began to pray for him. And every day since then, this morning, it was no different. They woke up. We had our, our time reading, and after that, we said, who should we pray for this morning? They said, pray for that boy. Pray for that boy. That's the heart that God wants us to have, to hurt, 
for what hurts people, to be moved for what moves people. In that same study, they found that if somebody took a a placebo that that they thought was a painkiller and they got shocked that their brain had less of a reaction. So a placebo painkiller can actually make your pain less. But they also found that in that same study, when you're observing somebody else and you see that they had a placebo, you then assume that they don't have as much pain. This is why the things that we listen to, the things that we watch, the things that tell us how society works and who's hurting and who's not hurting, if they're not based upon the Word of God, if it's some commentator telling you that this person has no right to tell you that they're hurting, tell that person to go read their Bible because Jesus hears every sigh and every cry of the oppressed. He listens to what every person's going through. And that's good news for you and for every person on this planet. He's a God who won't hold back, who stands up with justice, a justice that is full of love. During World War II, there's a lady that you probably haven't heard of. Her name was Elizabeth Smith. Uh, Elizabeth Schmidt. I don't know if I pronounced that right in German. But you probably haven't heard of her. There's actually a documentary that was done about her. But at her funeral, seven people attended. She was not very well known. But she actually went to a an institution, a theological training institution that, that other names that you might be familiar with were also trained at, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You probably heard that name from World War II, a theologian who wrote uh, and taught us about that grace is not cheap and taught us some, some other beautiful, beautiful truths about God who also stood up against Hitler and what the Nazis were doing. Well, after her theological training, she became a school teacher. And as a school teacher, she was watching what was going on in Germany. And she began to see something. She began to see that the church was passionate about helping the Jews who had converted to Protestantism. But that the church was not passionate about helping the Jews who remained Jews. That they weren't willing to speak up and out about what was going on in the world around them. So one summer, during her summer break, she, she got out her typewriter and she began to type furiously, typing out all of the different things that she saw going on in society around her. She was passionate to help the church see that it's important to stand up for those who are being mistreated. Now, fascinatingly enough, she went to Bonhoeffer and they believed that this, or Bonhoeffer got her document and he ended up... Uh, clearly standing up, and they believe that this had actually a big influence on him. But she tried for other theologians. There was a theologian by the name of Karl Barth that she actually traveled to Switzerland where he was in exile. She traveled to Switzerland to plead with him that she, he had to stand up since he had such a strong voice. He had to stand up against what was happening to the Jews. And this is what Karl Barth wrote in response. We reject the false doctrine that with human vainglory, the church could place the word and work of the Lord in the service of self-chosen desires, purposes, and plans. Hey, we need to, to just worry about talking about, about theological truth. Friends, theological truth is about helping those who are being mistreated. From cover to cover, the Bible reveals that God is love, not just in some abstract form, but that He cares about you And he cares about your neighbor, and he cares about the people that you don't care about with infinite love. She responded, 
by saying, And if in some cases the church cannot do anything for fear of its utter destruction, why does not she at least know about her guilt? Why does not she pray for those who suffer this unjustified oppression and persecution? Why are there no intercessory services? The church makes it hard to love her. Why is the world oftentimes running from the church? It's because you find the darkest chapters of human history are often perpetuated by the church. And sadly, in the third angel's message, it's about worshiping the beast. It's about a false system of worship. It's about a Christianity that has gone wrong. Again, I just want to thank you for being a church who's passionate about loving who I've seen it time and time again, when a person comes with need to this church family, that you open up your hearts, that you open up your checkbook, that you open up your time in order to help people. Let's let that increase and abound more and more. Martin Luther King Jr. said, the ultimate tragedy is not the oppression and cruelty by the bad people, but the silence over that by the good people. This is what Jesus was upset about, was the fact that they, were ang- that they were silent when they should have spoken out and said, yeah, heal her. He was upset by their silence. Are we speaking out? Are we saying what needs to be said to a world that's hurting? Do they know that the Templeton Hills Seventh-day Adventist Church cares about them? Even if they've gotten themselves into the mess that they're in, does the world around us know that we care? I pray that it does. And if you have more ideas for how to make it more and more evident, please let me know and please pray because this is our God-given mission. Proverbs 31.8 says, Speak for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. That's our calling. It's our calling to care for the world around us. And the more clearly we understand the three angels' messages, the more that we'll allow the Spirit of God to motivate us to love the world around us to the very end. To lay down our lives in loving service for the homeless, for those that look different than us, for those that we might not even feel should be here, for those who are in need of financial assistance, For those who feel like they have absolutely everything they need, but really need Jesus, we will do whatever it takes to show them his love. They will know that we're his disciples by our love. Father, thank you for the incredible love that you have displayed. Thank you, Jesus, for showing us what your anger looks like, that you go on doing good despite our hard hearts. And Lord, I ask that you would melt my heart You'd melt our hearts, that you would cause us to be able to feel again. And Lord, I pray as we take a moment in silence that you, you might speak to us. Maybe there's something in our lives, someone that we're listening to, some, some area we're recognizing that we're becoming hardened towards people. And we need to let that go so that we can be exposed to your loving character. Father, may we daily search our hearts and ask you to to make them soft, to be filled with love towards you and towards every single person, no matter how different their views or beliefs than us. And God, I need this. I need this. I think a lot of the rest of us do too. Would you melt my heart? Would you change me 
to love like you love until the very end. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.